Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. With the Copenhagen Climate Conference just 12 weeks away, the leaders of the world's biggest economies get together to hammer out a new agreement. But it's the poorest countries that have the most to lose. If there is not an agreement in Copenhagen and we don't move towards this low-carbon economy, the impacts hitting Africa are really in the life-and-death category. A preview of pivotal talks at the UN and the Economic Summit. We visit Pittsburgh, the surprise host for the G20 Summit, to see how the steel town is going green and growing greens in the back of a pickup. It's kind of amazing how many people busily making their way to work stop and smile and laugh when they see that there's a a farm growing in the back of the truck. A different kind of meals on wheels this week on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. With less than three months to iron out a new treaty to replace the Kyoto Protocol, there's a blizzard of climate change summits a-coming. New York, Pittsburgh, Bangkok, Barcelona, all opportunities to reach agreement, but the climate remains uncertain for a deal. The United States has yet to match the emissions cuts promised by the Europeans and the Japanese, and developing countries are still waiting for help from the richest nations to cut emissions and adapt to climate disruption. The U.S. and China together account for more than 40% of global warming gases, and the two have been negotiating extensively about how they might partner to move forward. Jennifer Morgan is director of the Climate and Energy Program for the World Resources Institute in Washington, D.C. The thing to note is that the U.S. and this new administration is actually pursuing climate change on a number of different fronts. They're engaged in the U.N. negotiations. They've started this a major economies forum where they're bringing the major economies together. And they're pursuing their bilateral relationships, a very important one, which is with China. And there, the administration is exploring with China some initiatives around things like energy efficiency, renewable energy, carbon capture and storage, to really build the the partnership that's going to be needed by these two major economies to decarbonize and to build some trust and some confidence, both in China that the U.S. is really moving and, of course, in the U.S. that China is really moving. What might be the first step that would show that there's substance to this notion that the U.S. uh, and China will work something out bilaterally in the context of the U.N. negotiations? I think a good step would be actually some very um, specific and concrete, hopefully transformational partnerships on buildings, energy efficiency buildings, on Carbon capture and storage, both countries have a large coal base, and they both need to figure out how to produce zero emissions coal. Uh, So if there was a partnership where they both said, we're going to do a set of demonstration plans together to figure out how we're going to work this technology, if they were to do that on some solar technology, so some very specific big technology projects. That would be one thing. I think the other thing that would be very helpful is if both countries worked on how they're going to measure, report, and verify their emissions. What systems of transparency are they going to set up? And to really start building the capacity in China to do that kind of measuring, reporting, and verification. And the U.S. has obvious experience in this. 
So those two areas, I think, are kind of the foundation, but also really looking transformationally how we're going to decarbonize these two economies, which, you know, starts in Copenhagen, but is a way much longer process to get there. In the context of these negotiations with China, a row has erupted over tariffs. Um, The U.S. is going to impose a a higher tariff. This comes just at the moment the U.S. is trying to come together with China on a bilateral agreement around climate. Some might say that there might be uh, domestic factors in both countries that might see it in their interest to have talks fall apart on the issue of trade. I think that the the trade agenda obviously is an incredibly hot, difficult, and challenging issue, and it is also in the thick of the climate issue. There are proposals on Capitol Hill in legislation that China would certainly find completely unacceptable, and there are concerns, obviously, in the United States uh, that feel that those types of measures are needed. My hope is that we can find a solution where, through a global agreement, we see that actually these competitiveness concerns. We don't need these additional trade measures in order to get a deal. I think that this is something that could really blow up in our faces if we're not careful and goes way beyond the climate agenda and hasn't yet really gotten the um, adequate attention that it needs. And then, of course, there's Japan, the world's second largest economy. Its incoming prime minister says that he now wants to cut emissions by 25 percent over 1990 levels over the next 10 years. Of course, the condition is only if other developed countries set similar ambitious goals. So how does Japan come out now in terms of leadership uh, for action on climate change? I think this uh, announcement by Japan, a highly efficient economy, uh, is extremely significant because they are, number one, saying, although we've already done a lot, they are ready to go further. And it also sets up this dynamic, which Australia and the European Union have also said is, okay, we'll go so far domestically. But if we get a global deal, if we get an agreement where other industrialized countries are ready to take on ambitious targets and developing countries are ready to take on ambitious actions, we're ready to go further. That's the kind of dynamic that we need, that shared endeavor to to save the planet and shift to a low-carbon economy. And I think the shift of Japan is very significant because they, in the past, have been quite negative on this. And this new government sees this, I think, as an opportunity. Japan is highly efficient. The export potentials could be large for such a nation. And, you know, they've got the systems in place. And China, of course, is a key one for them as well. They've got lots of bilateral relationships going there. So I hope that Japan can provide some inspiration. Now, what about the African bloc? Last month, uh, there were a group of African countries that says that it needs, what, uh, $60, $70 billion a year to help deal with the uh, effects of climate change. And now the prime minister of Ethiopia says Africa is not going to go along with the treaty unless the developed world responds. Africa has perhaps the most at stake in this agreement, along with the small island nations. If there is not an agreement in Copenhagen and we don't move towards this low-carbon economy, the impacts hitting Africa are really in the life-and-death category. And therefore, I think it's completely understandable for Ethiopia and others to be raising the red flag and saying this, this is about our not just our economic well-being, it's about our health, it's about 
you know, these people are so poor and the additional impacts of climate change, further droughts, food security issues are so dire that they, I hope, will be a formidable block moving forward. And we need developed countries to deliver. I, you know, I think if they don't deliver, there will not be an agreement at the end of the day. But they need to also see that developing countries are coming forward and taking actions and that with that funding, you know, we're going to make that shift to that low carbon economy. So it's, it's really this dance going on right now. Jennifer Morgan is the director of the Climate and Energy Program for the World Resources Institute. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Thank you. Appalachia's coal country, the dispute over mountaintop removal mining has heated up with activists blocking the gates to some mines and the Obama administration looking into some permits. The Environmental Protection Agency is focusing on 79 mountaintop removal sites, especially the valley fills. That's where the waste, rock and dirt is dumped, sometimes burying miles of nearby streams. The EPA announcement sparked emotional response from both sides of this debate, even though so far the agency hasn't stopped any mining. Ken Ward Jr. has been watching all this closely. He's a reporter for the Charleston Gazette in West Virginia. Ken Ward says EPA's ultimate decision on these mines will largely rest on what becomes of the water. EPA scientists believe that mountaintop removal is is not only burying streams, uh, hundreds of miles of streams, but they believe that this type of mining is damaging the water quality downstream from those valley fills. Scientists are seeing impacts on water quality ranging from increased levels of toxic selenium to metals and other sorts of pollutants that are increased when there is mining upstream. One EPA study uh, that's been much quoted found that mayflies had disappeared altogether downstream from valley fills, and EPA scientists see that as an indication that if those insects are gone, that the stream overall and the ecological system there is not very healthy. Now, these, uh, these water issues that EPA is raising here, are these the kind of problems that could be easily resolved by tinkering with the permits, uh, limiting the size of the valley fills, that sort of thing? Or are they pointing to problems here that would be much more difficult to, uh, to address? Well, you really hit on the question. What remains to be seen is exactly what is EPA going to find in the end acceptable and not acceptable. They they haven't said that they will veto any of these permits, but they just said they want to take a closer look at them. And, you know, what the mining industry would like to know, and I think environmentalists would like to know as well, is exactly how big of a valley fill, how much stream does EPA say can be filled? How much downstream impacts is acceptable? And, and the EPA had really not said where that bar is going to be yet. What about the legality of the fills themselves? The, the Bush administration uh, made some changes to the regulations for clean water to basically allow that type of fill to be dumped into streams. Any indication here that the Obama administration is ready to uh, revisit that? Well, the Obama administration has said that what it has in mind is to take unprecedented steps to reduce the impacts of mountaintop removal. What the Obama administration has not really commented on is whether it will propose to rewrite the uh, the Clean Water Act, what's called the fill rule, which the way it had previously been written before the Bush administration changed it, that fill rule, at least one federal judge said, outlawed valley fills altogether. So it's really, this is just a step in a process of trying to get at where is the Obama administration headed on this issue? We don't really know for sure. What was the reaction from West Virginia lawmakers when EPA said it was going to take a closer look here? 
Well, it's kind of interesting because previously there have been several rounds of this with the Obama administration where they've announced some actions on some mining permits, and, and you typically then get this race by the politicians here to who, who can ratchet up the rhetoric the highest against EPA and in favor of states' rights and in favor of the mining industry. But this time, when EPA announced it wanted to take a look at these 79 permits, it was a bit more muted of a response, not with the outrage and the rhetoric that we'd heard before. What do you make of that uh, somewhat muted response and no response from uh, Robert Byrd? Well, Senator Byrd has been a very strong supporter of the coal industry his whole career. He's been a very vocal supporter of mountaintop removal. But he was kind of hinting around that, you know, that maybe he was rethinking things. And, you know, you heard rumbles that there might be some new proposal or policy coming from Senator Byrd. It would certainly be interesting if, if Senator Byrd decided to engage in, in this and, and try to seek some middle ground or, or some solution to the problem. So what should we be watching for as this process unfolds? Is there sort of a, a key or telling a decision that would come from EPA to show us just where they're going here? Well, yes. We, we want to watch these 79 permits and, and see which of them, if any, EPA relents and allows the Corps to issue and, and look and see, well, what are the conditions in those permits? What sort of valley fills are proposed? What sort of changes does EPA press the companies to make in their mining plans? There's a host of those sorts of things that environmental groups would like to see this administration do and are pressing this administration to do. We need to watch and see what happens with us. Ken Ward, Jr. of the Charleston Gazette. You can also read his blog. It's called Coal Tattoo. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Jeff. Coming up, the city of steel rebuilds green. A visit to Pittsburgh. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Climate change will be high on the agenda when the G20 convenes in Pittsburgh. Hardly a world capital. And Jeff, you went to Steeltown to find out why that was chosen as the host city for the economic summit. Yeah, you know, this has been a bit of a puzzler from the moment White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs made the announcement. One quick announcement before we get started. Now, just listen to the White House Press Corps reaction here. The United States will host the next G20 summit in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. <laughs> Well, that chuckling didn't go over so well in Steeltown. Of course, the Pittsburghers, uh, we kind of got our backs up straight. It's like, why are they laughing at our community? So why Pittsburgh? Well, as we look at it, why not Pittsburgh? Mark Leahy is showing me around the facility he manages, Pittsburgh's David Lawrence Convention Center. That's where the G20 leaders will meet, and it happens to be the country's largest certified green building, as a plaque on the wall proclaims. That is our oh, certification. There, there it is. Tells, tells you what it's all about. U.S. Green Building Council uh, gold standard? Gold standard. Lead gold, 2003. Uh, leadership in energy and environmental design. That is our pride and joy right there. Nearly every scrap from the convention center's kitchens gets composted. Gray water is reused. Natural light from louvered windows floods the massive meeting rooms. And the soaring, sloping roof circulates the air. So imagine several thousand people in a convention center. I don't have any air or chilling or anything going on uh, and no lights on. So the energy savings is just tremendous. 
And it's not just the convention center. Pittsburgh ranks seventh in the country in the number of green buildings, thanks largely to its biggest bank, PNC. PNC has constructed more LEED-certified green buildings than any company in the world. Fred Solomon shows me PNC's newest green buildings, two high-rises, 64 green branch offices, and now the country's largest living wall. Six stories of flowing, flowering greenery on display just in time for the G20 dignitaries. It's not just the world's leaders. It'll be 3,000 journalists coming to Pittsburgh to see why Pittsburgh? Why did the president pick this city? And we believe that our commitment to green, together with Pittsburgh's history of overcoming uh, difficult economic times, this was the can't-miss location for the summit. Take that snickering press corps. This is no Rust Belt remnant. Pittsburgh's steel helped build America. Now the city's rebuilding in green. Influential nonprofits like the Heinz Foundation nudged the private sector toward efficiency and clean energy, and local government officials cleaned up old industrial sites for redevelopment. Nearly one-third of the region's technology jobs are now in green industries. And Pittsburgh's research universities provide the creative juice for new green businesses. For a company called Plextronics, it literally was juice. That liquid, developed by a Carnegie Mellon professor, is what Plextronics COO Glenn Thompson thinks could revolutionize the way we light our products and homes. You can hear it shaking here. The, the, the material that's in here is, a, is one of the inks that we would use to produce, in this case, a, a light-emitting material, a light-emitting diode, for example. Thompson showed me around the lab where 70 Plextronics employees develop printable circuitry. They hope to light consumer devices and generate solar power with inexpensive, non-toxic, thin films. The end of the day, you'll see your television screen probably roll out of a tube someday and be pasted to your wall in your home. But white lighting is the real opportunity because we have the capability then to replace fluorescent and incandescent lighting then with very low-cost, cool energy that can be driven by the photocells that are on the outside of your building. I'm wondering, uh, growing up, did you ever dream that there would be something like this happening in, in Pittsburgh? Not in my wildest dreams, in all honesty. Uh, this was a steel town when I was a kid. Uh, it was dirty. It was um, very, very blue-collar. I never dreamed that you'd see anything of this high technology come out of this area. It's a real Phoenix situation. It really is. It's a rebirth. It is remarkable that green has taken root in Pittsburgh at all, considering its polluted past. Choking smoke shrouded the mill towns along the three river valleys. Nowhere did the smog take a greater toll than in the little town of Denora, just up the Monongahela River. Among Denora's vacant storefronts, there's a new museum. It's dedicated to the great smog of October 1948. Retired school teacher Charles Stacy remembers it well. Oh, certainly I remember. I was a senior in high school at the time, and we had to walk to school through that. We couldn't see the traffic signals. We couldn't see the street lights. And, of course, we had to be very careful that we didn't fall off the curb. A temperature inversion trapped toxic fumes from the mill's zinc smelter. 20 people died in just four days. Stacy says the local hotel took in the sick as some 6,000 fell ill. Things got to be so bad that they had to make a temporary morgue on the lower floor because the funeral directors couldn't handle all the bodies. So in the wake of this, I mean, people died. It was kind of hard to ignore the reality of it. 
but people still didn't want to address it. They didn't wish to address it because this was their livelihood, and uh, they would rather put up with the dirt and polluted air and maybe poisons in the atmosphere and so forth just to maintain their jobs. And uh, we say that clean air started here. It focused attention on air pollution, and, but people died, and we lost jobs, and the community is... Uh, fallen on hard times as a result of that, and we hope that uh, other communities learn their lessons from Denora. In the 60s, Denora's mills were among the first in the region to close. The closures continued through the 70s and 80s as the steel industry collapsed. You can still watch steel being made around here, just a couple miles downriver from Pittsburgh in the town of Braddock, where Lisa Raudebush is Mon Valley Works general manager for U.S. Steel. The uh, Edgar Thompson Works was built in 1875. It was the first integrated steel facility in Pennsylvania. And right now it's the last operating steel facility in Pennsylvania. It's pretty amazing. There's a big push here to, to green Pittsburgh. Where does this plant fit into that? Well, we think steel is a a very efficient material. We can make very lightweight cars out of steel. Uh, We do make the wind turbines out of steel. And I think steel is green. Steel workers have embraced a green jobs agenda. The mayor of this mill town, John Fetterman, joined some steel workers for TV ads promoting a climate change bill. We need a cap on carbon pollution. It'll create jobs making things like solar panels and wind turbines. There's 250 tons of steel in a wind turbine. You guys can handle that, right? I sat down with Fetterman, who defies every stereotype of an environmentalist. He's six foot eight and nearly 300 pounds of tattooed, bald badness. Fetterman tells me he's looking for a working man's green economy, one with jobs for those who wear blue collars. He thinks it's the last shot for Braddock, a town so down and out he doesn't even describe it as working class. Braddock is is part of the fringe where unemployment consistently is above 30 percent, where we are the the county's poorest community. You'd like to be working class America. Absolutely. We we, we someday aspire to be working class America. So how real is this green thing that's happening in Pittsburgh from from your town's perspective? I, I think you know, without trying to be negative for in front of the G20, there's a lot of great things to, to highlight about Pittsburgh. But I, I think it's not a neat, you know, kind of Hollywood narrative where Pittsburgh gets its heart broken, loses a quarter of a million steel jobs, and now everything's honky-dory again. It, it really isn't. Fetterman's a green jobs believer, but he's also ready to deliver the reality check here. And it rings true with what I saw. Yeah, Pittsburgh's got clean tech jobs, but not yet in those hardest hit communities. And yes, the air is cleaner than it was, but this is still a city with the nation's worst soot. Pittsburgh's green revival is real, but not yet as solid as the steel that built the city. Though the focus of the upcoming UN and G20 summits will be on climate change, at the moment healthcare reform is dominating debate on Capitol Hill. But if you ask author Michael Pollan, he'll tell you climate change and healthcare are closely related. Our sugar and fat-laden diet is based on fossil fuel, he says, and when you add up the global warming gases from agriculture, it's more than comes out of cars and trucks. 
Two out of three Americans are overweight, and that costs the health system billions of dollars a year. And Michael Pollan says if we want to cut health care costs and help save the planet, it's time to stop subsidizing the industrial production of junk food. We're very concerned, and rightly so, about soaring health care costs. We're spending about $2.3 trillion on health, which is about twice as much as people do in Europe. And in Europe, they have a healthier population. The focus in our discussions about this health care cost crisis has all been about the inefficiencies built into the system. And I don't think we're paying enough attention to the factors outside of the system that are causing us to be so unhealthy. We have soaring rates of preventable chronic diseases. One of the big expenses for the healthcare system now and certainly going forward is type 2 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes is caused by several factors, but uh, large shots of glucose to the metabolism are a very important one of them. And you've got adolescents in this country that are on average getting 15% of their calories today from soda. Most of the experts who've looked at the question say that if you could reduce soda consumption, and not just soda, but all sweetened beverages, uh, iced tea, Gatorade, all those products, you would help with that problem, and you would save an awful lot of money because every case of type 2 diabetes costs, on average, about more than $7,000 a year to treat, to maintain. And the mystery is, why don't we talk more about this uh, as we're debating our healthcare system? And why don't we talk about this? I think part of it is that it seems incredibly difficult to people to tackle the food system. It's a more entrenched and powerful industry even than the healthcare system. Uh, in the case of reforming healthcare, you at least have all those powerful corporations that can't afford their health insurance bills, and they become allies of the president or the Congress in efforts to reform. Food, you don't really have that yet. You have a situation where everybody likes cheap food, at least in the short term. So I think what you need before you're going to have a powerful movement to reform the food system is, in fact, the health insurance industry getting on your side. And that's what I'm really hopeful about, uh, because if we do reform health care, even in a kind of diluted, mild way, and only get the insurance reforms that even the weakest bills provide for, which is to say no more pre-existing conditions, uh, that the insurance companies have to take everyone at the same price, and that they can't toss you off the plan once you get sick. If we just get those three changes, the healthcare insurers will recognize, I think overnight, that they have a powerful interest in preventing every case of type 2 diabetes, every case of obesity, every case of heart disease, and they will then become powerful allies of the movement to reform the food system. How fair is it to point the finger at the food industry, which supplies an abundance of inexpensive food, for what are basically unwise personal choices? Well, you know, that's the argument that the food industry has always used, that it's a matter of personal responsibility. There's a whole lot of research to raise questions about that and to point to the fact that people are manipulated by the way food is processed. But even if you don't buy that, I think everyone can buy the fact that children are not in a position to exercise personal responsibility when it comes to their food choices, and that there is a real ethical and moral question about marketing unhealthy foods to children, which happens, of course, routinely if you've ever turned on the Cartoon Network. You know, maybe children should be protected from the food marketing marketplace. But then you have another area here. If you have a dollar to spend in the supermarket, you will find yourself, and you don't have a lot of money, the way our system is set up, you can get more calories per dollar 
of junk food than you can of healthy food. Uh, You can get 1,250 calories per dollar of chips or cookies, but only 250 calories of carrots or broccoli. Um, That is due to the fact that the farm policies we have are favoring the really unhealthy calories. We subsidize corn and soy, which are really the building blocks of fast food. We subsidize feedlot meat. We do a lot to ensure that fast food is cheap. So um, I think the personal responsibility argument breaks down pretty quickly. And I think you really need to look at the environment in which we're eating and the system that is dictating the choices that we supposedly have. So how receptive is the Congress to a change in agricultural policies? What kind of political will is there for reform? There's very little in Congress, you know, at least on the, uh, the two committees that powerfully control our agricultural policies, and those are the agricultural committees of the, of the House and Senate. These committees are really strongly dominated by agribusiness. They consist of farm state legislators, for the most part, backed by a lot of money from uh, food manufacturers and buyers of cheap agricultural commodities, and, and they reflect those interests. And they need to represent eaters as well as farmers and food manufacturers. Michael Pollan. What relation does this debate over health care and, and food have to do with the question of sustainability? Oh, it has everything to do with sustainability. I mean, these problems are very closely linked. The problem, as I see it in our food system, is that as we have industrialized it, we have taken a system that is at its ecological heart, of course, a solar system. I mean, the only way to get food calories is to use sunlight and photosynthesis to produce carbohydrates. I mean, this is the basis of everything we eat. You know, since World War II, we've increasingly replaced that solar energy with the power of fossil fuel. We use fossil fuels to make the fertilizers, to uh, make the pesticides, to drive the farm machinery, and then to process the food and move it all around the world. In the process of doing this, we've moved toward uh, highly productive, highly efficient monocultures. So when you have that kind of agriculture, which is incredibly productive, and we have to grant it its power to feed us very, very cheaply, it tends to push you in the direction of highly processed, very unhealthy food. So you're saying change the way we eat and we can address climate change and be healthier, cut the cost of, of, of health care. And reduce our fossil fuel consumption. It's kind of amazing you could get all those benefits, but it won't be easy. To squeeze the fossil fuel out of the food system means going back to much more diversified farming, going back to more regional agriculture, and all of which is going to take a lot more farmers than we have right now. It won't be easy. But in the same way, we need to learn how to run an industrial civilization without cheap fossil fuel because we can't count on it in the future and we can't afford what it's doing to the climate. We are going to need to figure out how to run a food system using solar energy again. So how do you suggest we tackle our unhealthy eating habits? What practical policies need to be implemented? I think we need to look at the set of incentives we have in our agricultural system. I think it's important to understand that it's not a free market system, that since the Depression, the government has played a very important role in the design and functioning of our food system. The incentives that we have designed for farmers, the way we support them with our subsidies and other programs, has been to strongly encourage them to overproduce to produce more corn and soy and wheat than we can eat. The reason for that is if you can get the farmers to overproduce, the price of food comes down, and the buyers of these cheap agricultural commodities, everybody from Coca-Cola to KFC to McDonald's, you know, loves that um, because their raw material costs go down. So the challenge is then to design a set of incentives that gets them to grow more food rather than raw materials for fast food, 
uh, that gets them to take better care of the environment. In other words, that stresses quality of farming rather than quantity of farming. And then you've got what we can do as individuals and uh, what I call voting with your fork. And for me, that came, you know, I thought a lot about that. And, and to the extent that we can eat real food, not too much of it, and mostly plants, you will be doing a lot for your health and you'll be doing a lot for the environment. So our eating habits, uh, you know, look, what happens on our plate represents our deepest, most powerful engagement with the rest of the world. Michael Pollan is a professor of journalism at the University of California, Berkeley, and author of In Defense of Food, an Eater's Manifesto. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you, Steve. Always a pleasure. Well, just ahead, we'll talk to someone who's tackling these food issues one school lunch at a time, the renegade lunch lady. Stay with us on Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Just ahead, a tour of the tiniest farm in New York City. But first, this note on emerging science from Christine Parrish. Ever since I was a young boy, I played the silver ball. From Soho down to Brighton, I must have played them all. Fly and see nothing like him in any amusement hall. That depth on the flag kid sure plays a mean Tommy is up against a new pinball whiz kid, a tiny creature that slams around photons to score big points for solar power. The new kid on the block is actually a very old organism called the diatom. It's been around since the dinosaurs. And this single-celled organism has a unique feature. It essentially builds its own glass house. Diatom shell walls are made of silica and full of tiny holes. These create a kind of fine mesh screen, the perfect nanostructure for trapping light. But to collect sunlight effectively, the silica must be transformed into photovoltaic material. So the university researchers put the diatoms on a titanium dioxide diet, and the diatoms gobbled it up. Then the diatom shells were dyed to attract even more photons. And the engineers scored a triple ball, Photons attracted to the dye enter the screen-like shell and ping around in a frenzy, just like a pinball. Photons trapped inside the shell produce three times as much energy as they currently do in conventional solar cells. As an added bonus, they can even do it on cloudy days, and the low-tech diatom can easily and cheaply be grown in a lab. Solar panels using diatoms won't be on the market tomorrow, but it might not be long. All the researchers need is a cash backer to get their ball into play. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Christine Parrish. More than 30 million kids in this country get free or reduced price school lunches every day. But the nutritional value of those meals is in question. Living on Earth's Jessica Elise Smith checked out what kids were eating at the Josiah Quincy Elementary School in Boston's Chinatown. Chicken nuggets with french fries. Was it good? Yes. Or drinking milk? (laughs) 
and do you ever get school lunches? No. What did you eat instead? Um, I ate a yogurt, um, my peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and I have an apple in my lunchbox. And what did you eat? Chicken nuggets with fries. And what's your favorite school lunch? Pizza and chicken nugget. Pizza. Well, the menu's quite different at the Boulder Valley School District in Colorado. That's where Chef Ann Cooper directs nutrition services. She calls herself the renegade lunch lady, and she's picking a food fight over the nation's school lunch program. Ann Cooper, we just heard what those kids had for lunch. Is that typical? You know, in most schools all across America, an average school lunch is chicken nuggets, tater tots, chocolate milk with high fructose corn syrup, canned food cocktail, and sometimes popsicles. It's really awful. High fat, high sugar, high salt. Really, really terrible. What would you be feeding those kids instead? So in Boulder Valley School District, where I'm currently the director of nutrition services, instead of chicken nuggets, we would serve roast chicken. So a typical day might be roast chicken, roast potatoes, some kind of vegetable, full salad bar, organic regional milk, and fresh fruit. We need to serve our kids real food. Give me a sense of what's happening in the schools where you have managed to start changing the meals. How do the kids respond? You know, like anything else, not every kid's going to like everything right away. So, you know, some of the kids aren't going to love it, but then you've got to work with the kids. You need to do tastings, farm-to-school programs, hands-on experiential learning and cooking and gardening classes. But it works. Kids will eat the food. But you have to work with them, they have to participate, and the food has to be good. How do we get to where we are anyway? I mean, you listen to parents, parents are always saying, you are what you eat. And you listen to politicians, and politicians are always saying, the kids are our future. So why is it we're feeding our future junk? (laughs) Well, you know, when the National School Lunch Program started about 60 years ago, it was really all about malnutrition and making sure that our kids ate better food. But about 30 years into the program, or halfway through, all the original lunch ladies needed to retire. And boy, that 30-year-old equipment was very tired. So schools were looking at this big infrastructure need, all this new equipment and all this new hiring. At about that same time, we were seeing a lot of highly processed food and a lot of technologies coming out of the war that now had peacetime uses. And all of a sudden, big business said to school districts, they were kind of scratching their heads going, what do we do next? They said, oh, you don't need lunch ladies that are trained, and you don't need new equipment. Here, we have all this processed food. And because the way the USDA commodifies corn and soy, much of that processed food was really cheap. So we started down this road of really cheap processed food in schools. Give me a sense of the importance of the school lunch program. You know, there's 1.1 million hungry children every single day in this country, and that for most of those children, they get the largest proponent of their calories from the National School Lunch Program. The National School Lunch Program, especially in this economy, is what keeps these children functioning, alive, and healthy. And if the food they're getting isn't helping to do that, we really, really are making a mistake. What's happening now that gives you reason to hope that you might be able to change things? You know, I'm so optimistic at this point. First of all, we have a president who mentioned school lunch and health and children in the same paragraph. The last president who mentioned school lunch was Reagan. He made ketchup a vegetable. So that gives me great room for optimism. We have a first lady who's growing a garden for kids on her front lawn, the front lawn of the White House. I mean, I'm super optimistic because I think we have an administration and a USDA and a Department of Education that really understands the importance of fixing this problem. Now, Congress, uh, at some point, is going to have to take another look at the very important Child uh, Nutrition Act. 
the lawmakers have to take a look at it and, and decide how they're going to renew it. What opportunities does that present? Well, I would tell you what I believe. If in my perfect world, if I could make the decision, I would say we should add a dollar to the reimbursement rate, but have that dollar specifically given a priority to fresh fruits, fresh vegetables, whole grains, and regionally procured foods. I think we need to allocate money to build new kitchens. We need to allocate money for a training program so that lunch ladies all across the country could get the training to go from processed foods to fresh foods. I think we should start something called the Culinary Corps, where, you know, we graduate 30,000 culinary students a year from culinary schools, and many of them aren't going to get jobs because the restaurant industry isn't doing so well. So what if we have tuition reimbursement paid for by the government that would send those culinary students into schools to help cook and teach cooks for schools? And finally, we need a national marketing campaign. We need to help kids understand that healthy, delicious food can also be food they want to eat. So we need to make school food cool food. An extra dollar per meal for that school lunch program. Is that what we're talking about? Yes, and that would end up being $5.4 billion a year because that's how many lunches we do. And I know that's a tremendous amount of money in this economy, but when you think about the $260 billion we're currently spending on diet-related disease, and when you think about this generation of children, these nine-year-olds who don't get to vote, who don't get to decide, that they're the ones who are going to have a shorter life than their parents. It just seems like, as a country, we need to make this happen. So that's how you would pitch this, is, I look, I know it's a lot of money, but this is an investment. It's absolutely an investment. Research has shown that the life expectancy and achievement gaps between rich and poor kids has grown and grown and grown. We now have a generation of at-risk kids who can't think at school and can't do well in school because they're hungry and they're malnourished. That is just not the America that we all want. That's not the America we want for kids across this country. It was Harry Truman who set this this program up, right? Correct. Harry Truman said, no nation is healthier than its children or more prosperous than its farmers. What do you think old give him heck Harry would say if he saw the state of our kids' health and our farmers' prosperity now? I think and I hope he would be disgusted. I think and I hope that he would say this does need to be a national mandate, that this does need to be a change that we not only can make, but have to make, that we have a moral imperative to take care of our children. Ann Cooper, the renegade lunch lady, thanks very much. Thank you. The chicken knuckles with toxic gravy, cream of tea bags, wombat pelt, lizard lips. What's that? Smelt? Chocolate pudding that goes crunch. Is it any wonder why I pack my lunch? Rev up the engine, throw that truck into gear, and be careful. Don't shake the tomatoes off the vine. Such is the life of Ian Cheney and Kurt Ellis, who take the term truck farming to a whole new level in New York City. Living on Earth, Jessica Elise Smith took a trip to the Big Apple to dig her fingers in the dirt and find out what, besides a tree, grows in Brooklyn. Brooklyn isn't known as a hotbed of organic vegetable gardening, but then again, neither are flatbed trucks. We're leaning on the back of my granddad's old 1986 Dodge pickup truck, which is now filled with vegetables. Ian Cheney proudly shows off the neat rows of lettuce, arugula, herbs, and tomatoes in his midnight black flatbed. Plastic cows and chickens guard the hot peppers, 
and the dark brown soil makes a nice background for the growing greens. A lot of trucks in Brooklyn, not a lot of farms. When Ian and Kurt Ellis moved to New York, they wanted to grow their own food. But space was an issue. So Kurt says they took a cue from others who were growing food in the city. There's essentially a green roof here in the bed of the pickup, and we're using it to grow food. In fact, they sought out rooftop gardeners to find out how to garden with minimal soil. The technology is pretty elegant and pretty simple. It's a plastic membrane on the bottom of the truck that prevents the roots from winding down into the gas tank. On top of this membrane, a plastic structure that looks like an egg carton fills with water to hold moisture in the soil. When it rains, water that doesn't fit in the small cups drains out of the truck. Then a layer of lightweight soil is covered by potting soil and compost. A lot of this basil is ready to be picked. That's like a cooking herb, right? A man from the neighborhood stops by the truck. Take a look at it. It smells really good. With a big grin, the passerby samples the locally grown basil. Yeah, yeah, it's good when you put it on your meat. Neighbors are welcome to graze, and bags of fresh pickings are delivered when there is ample harvest to people who sign up around the city. This is community-supported agriculture in which people buy a share of your farm ahead of time. Ian says that about 20 members subscribe to the CSA and get fresh salad makings, herbs, and wickedly hot peppers throughout the season. It's probably New York's tiniest CSA. People pay $20. But it turns out they've been able to get a fair bit of produce out of the bag. The urban farmers have found a way to grow a lot of vegetables in a truck bed that's only 5 by 8 feet. Lettuce is really ready to be eaten. Ian picks a few leaves of lettuce and then jumps into the driver's seat. Kurt navigates by iPhone. Bear right onto Lafayette here. Driving through the dense Brooklyn traffic, the farmers wave to people on the street who look at the farm with equal parts bewilderment and joy. Kurt says this farm brings out the childish sense of wonder in almost everyone. It's kind of amazing how many people busily making their way to work stop and smile and laugh when they see that there's a, a farm growing in the back of the truck. On the side of the road, a crew of construction workers notices truck farm drive by. You see this truck, we crack up. It's, it's unbelievable. Farming is not new to Ian and Kurt. In 2004, the two teamed up to grow corn in Iowa and turn their experience into the documentary King Corn. In Iowa, they grew one acre of conventional corn using the techniques of modern industrial agriculture. We used genetically modified seeds and anhydrous ammonia, nitrogen fertilizer, and chemical pesticides. During the filming, they were shocked to learn that their bounty would not end up directly on people's plates, but instead would be processed into high-fructose corn syrup for soft drinks and fed to cattle. We're going to make a left up here. Now, the filmmakers by day and farmers in their spare time plan to turn their current adventures into another documentary to illustrate the creative ways people can grow food in the city. And they hope Truck Farm shows that healthy foods can be grown in neighborhoods where fresh produce is generally not found. Right now we're in the Gowanus neighborhood of Brooklyn. It's a pretty industrial neighborhood, and there are no large supermarkets in Gowanus. Kurt scans the landscape of used car lots and soda-selling corner stores and says he wants to encourage something different. I think that's where urban agriculture comes in. We've got all these rooftops around New York City. We've got all these empty parking spaces in New York City. We should be growing food there however we can.
truckers have the best view. They can see down into the truck. And they could have the biggest farms, you know? I mean, look at that. That would be a beautiful farm. Tow truck farm would be good. Farming in the truck is fun, but Kurt says he and Ian are also on a mission to improve people's health by giving them more ways to get fruits and vegetables. The CDC's statistic is that one in three current first or second graders is on a path to develop type 2 diabetes. And if we don't change the way we eat, we're going to be in a serious problem in terms of health care in this country. They say Truck Farm can demonstrate that access to fresh produce doesn't have to be a far-off dream. I mean, not that Truck Farm is going to feed the world, but it sure is an example of how we need to start thinking outside the box about how we can feed the world in a different way. Think inside the bed. Think inside the bed of the truck. And Ian says Truck Farm could even help the ailing auto industry. The 2010 Dodge Truck Farm, I think that could be a real winner. It comes with a, a garden ready to plant and think of the money you'd save on groceries. I think this could be a real model for how the auto industry could rejuvenate itself. Pedal to the metal, this agrarian duo drives off through the New York traffic, hoping to inspire future urban farmers. For Living on Earth, I'm Jessica Elise Smith in Brooklyn. On the next Living on Earth, a new health challenge. Sudden aspen decline brings a sad change to the forests of the Rockies. It means more or less very long-term, semi-permanent loss of aspen on a lot of these sites, which a lot of people don't want to see. What's behind the death of the trees and what might be done to stop it? Next time on Living on Earth. We leave you today in the Brazilian state of Mato Grosso near the Rio des Morches. At sunrise, the river of the dead comes alive with the sound of birds. Toucans, flycatchers, parakeets, antbirds, pygmy tyrants, and macaws all vie for attention. There are over 800 species of birds in Mato Grosso. Living on Earth's Bruce Gellerman captured this recording in one of the most agriculturally productive and threatened ecosystems on the planet. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Bolinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Elise Smith, Ike Sriskanjaraja, and Mitra Taj, with help from Sarah Calkins, Marilyn Gavoni, and Sammy Souza. Our interns are Quincy Campbell and Nirja Perrette. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Jeff Young. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com.
Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, and the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues, the Rockefeller Foundation, and its campaign for American workers. More at rockfound.org. And PaxWorld Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. PaxWorld for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI Public Radio International.